Hi, I'm Ian, co-founder at Dig Insights and president of Dig's innovation insights platform, Upside. Welcome to Dig In. Dig In is the place to stay up to date on what's happening in the world of innovation, research, and technology, to find inspiration from today's business and innovation leaders, and to properly dig into hot topics that matter for consumer brands right now. And when applicable, we'll bring our own research to that conversation. Welcome back to this week's episode of Dig In. Today, we are chatting to another founder, which is always really popular with our audience. So we're excited to have Sam Prohaska on from goodmorning.com. He is the founder. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the story behind the company, uh, the multi-brand strategy that they employ and, and why they do that. And then also the rationale behind not selling through retailers. They're an exclusively direct-to-consumer Canadian mattress company. So Sam, um, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Do you mind walking me and the listeners a little bit through your background and how you came to build goodmorning.com? Yeah, sure. So I'm a computer engineer. <clears throat> um, I mean, I graduated, you know, 20 years ago now um, and uh, started a career in software as a service in the real estate industry. Um, and then with the collapse of the global financial system uh, in or the, the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, um, I, I watched a, a lot of my hard work over the, the prior decade uh, evaporate and looked for, um, was looking for another opportunity. And at the time I'd, uh, I found, um, I just recently recently had started a, a new relationship and needed to buy a mattress. And that was really the the entry point into what uh, ultimately became goodmorning.com. And what was annoying about buying a mattress when you needed to? Uh, well, well, I mean, <laughs> uh, I think any, any of us who've been through that process uh, can probably strongly relate to how suboptimal the experience is. I, I prefer the word suboptimal. Um, rather than annoying. <laughs> rather than annoying or uh, infuriating or, uh, you know, intensely frustrating. So suboptimal. Um, it, yeah, I mean, it, you know, we've all, many of us have done it. You, you go to a mattress store and, um, and the, you immediately are, confronted or uh, accosted by a, a salesperson who's who's very uh, heavily incentivized by commission um, and rather than trying to figure out like the first questions uh, that, that you get asked aren't really about what your comfort preference is they're more about um, trying to figure out what establish what your budget is and so then once that's uh, been established they, they lead you over to that section of the store where they've got some choices in that budget uh, in that area. And then you've got that awkward uh, 10 seconds to lie down on the mattress with your feet, with your shoes on. Um, and then, uh, you know, when you look at the price tag and it's $3,000 for a, a foam mattress, um, that's when the, the uh, pseudoscience comes in to, to qualify the extortionate price tag. And, and I, I went through this and I just, I walked out, just, I couldn't believe it. It, it was like going into a, this was in 2000, uh, 2009, 2010. And uh, it was like going in a time machine, you know, uh, going back to the, 
eighties um, with that high pressure. I mean, I was a kid in the eighties, so I didn't really experience that, I suppose, but, you know, watching the old movies and things that it just felt like going back in a time machine. And, and so for anyone who wants to feel, you know, the nostalgia of the past, that that's experience is still alive and well in a mattress store. Um, but for, for those who want something a little more customer focused, uh, well, there's now there's goodmorning.com. And, and that was really the experience I had was um, uh, on a Saturday and, and really the impetus to start the business came from that. And, and I and my co-founders started it on the Monday. Really cool. What, so how long has goodmorning.com been? Um, how, when did you found it? Yeah, 2010. So we're in our 11th, I suppose wow. we're just about to enter our 12th year now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember when we'd initially chatted, we talked about how, you know, goodmorning.com kind of started this whole movement because now it's such a saturated space. You've got like the Caspers and the eaves of the world. I know um, if I'm on the subway, I always see an ad for some sort of direct to consumer mattress brand. How do you think goodmorning.com is kind of handling um, the desire to shop online for a mattress a little bit differently than the competitors? Yeah, well, you know, so so when we started, uh, this was this was unheard of. In fact, the, the whole mattress space was um, considered immune to the Internet because it was largely thought that uh, folks had to experience, you know, touch and feel the, the product before they bought. And uh, so we, we challenged that assumption. We felt that we could offer better better value by, go, by going direct to consumer. Um, it took us a long time to, to, to convince suppliers uh, of that our vision was, uh, was a strong uh, vision. Um, but yeah, once we, once we got it launched and we tweaked the model, uh, it was actually when we came up with this absolute, we, we identified that the big risk to consumers, so the, the job that consumers need us to do is or the customers need us to do is to uh, is to get them a comfortable mattress at a great price and that lasts a long time. And uh, a, a big barrier to that is is the concern that it's not going to be comfortable. And so we actually call this the, the customer job to be done. Um, and and so we we came up with this 120 night at home uh, risk free trial, and that, and that was a nail biter. We were the first in the world, I believe, uh, to do that. In 20, I believe it was 2011, we launched that. So 10 years ago. Um, and we had we had a few years of, of freedom to operate in the business without any meaningful competition, and uh, we, we were able to build the business. And um, uh, yeah, it was it was a f- great time, kind of a green greenfield time. And then in 2014, 2015, <clears throat> um, a few folks in the U.S. spotted us, and uh, which would ultimately become Casper. They they essentially just uh, uh, repeated and duplicated just with a whole lot of money. And uh, so that really led to this explosion of mattress companies, which was, uh, and in 2017, we reached this chorus of, of people entering the market. And I think at that time, there were two, two competitors entering a week. Uh, we call that peak mattress. Internally, we refer to it as peak mattress. <laughs> peak mattress. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that was a, that was pretty crazy. You know, we were, uh, really swept up in the turbulence of that. Uh, we certainly saw at the time we were operating only with uh, our first brand, which is Novusped, and really that uh, we we did see 
a plateauing of, of growth, um, plateauing of revenue. And it was everything we could do just to just to keep up and keep in the uh, in the race. Um, and that, yeah, that was a fascinating time. Uh, and that is for better, so for better or for worse, uh, we are that 129 trial that originated with goodmorning.com uh, is the reason that we've all been um, inundated with mattress ads on subways and podcasts and, and uh, Facebook and everywhere else. So um, yeah, sorry, folks. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's our fault. <laughs> no, I mean, it's pretty cool. I, and it's really cool to, to hear that you guys were kind of the first to adopt that strategy. Um, I think we kind of touched on this, but I know many people might be thinking, you know, I don't shop directly with goodmorning.com, but I, you know, they're thinking about a Canadian mattress brand that they might have, that they might have purchased from or that they might have seen advertising for. Um, you guys actually have a multi-brand strategy. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I would imagine um, a lot of the listeners have have actually seen or have been exposed to your brands, but it might not be the goodmorning.com name. Uh, yeah, that, that's right. So yeah, I mean, we have, we have hundreds of thousands of customers in, in Canada. Um, and, and so, uh, uh, and they may, they may not have, in fact, the majority of them have not bought through uh, goodmorning.com. They, they will have gone to douglas.ca uh, or juno.ca or loganandcove.com. Uh, and these are, these are some of our brands. So we have, uh, I believe we have six or seven brands now um, that are all really much uh, targeting different segments of the market as we see them. And uh, so providing different sets of features at different price points, um, all the same, all orbiting around the same concept of, of trying to pack as much value into the product as possible. Um, so we've never, so every, so that's the common, the red thread through everything is, is just absolutely value uh, density focused, but you know, that, that this concept of value means different things to different, different customers. And so what we try to do is, is, is get a, uh, a mattress for every, what we say for every bedroom body and budget. And, uh, and so that's really what we've done. And, and this really the, the multi-brand strategy has been premised on a tactical observation that that uh, it seems like there's this. If you've ever walked into a mattress store, or, or and in fact, it's actually common to any purchase journey where you're faced with decisions uh, for expensive things. So cars are similar, or you know, if, if it's a if it's a fairly big and meaningful purchase in your life, then uh, decision fatigue can kick in pretty easily. So we found that if we if we focus on the merits of a given given product uh, relative to uh, a specific again customer job to be done, then we actually are uh, we can better we can achieve our our mission here of, of getting the right mattress to the right customer more efficiently um, and more effectively. So that's why we've chosen the strategy. Yeah. Um... And I, in our last conversation, we talked about those personas or those. So did the jobs be done sort of inform each of those seven personas for the seven distinct brands? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. And of course, you know, this is where when you speak to any or well, many uh, folks who've started companies that have, that have been successful or had some uh, product market fit, they always refer to this 
this luck element. And I think that the luck, it's actually really only been recently that we've actually been able to define what that luck actually is. And uh, the luck is, is choosing the right customer job to be done. Um, and you can, you can uh, come at that from many different angles. You can, you can segment your market. Uh, you can look at the different types of customer. Uh, you can, you can try to to get into their head spaces and, and really figure out what it is that the what their goals are and uh, what the optimal offering is to help them achieve those goals. But really, it comes down to uh, a bit of an educated guess at the end of the day, and and that's where the luck. That's where you need a little bit of luck. Uh, yeah. Of course, you can you can increase your luck by trying uh, and moving quickly, trying more things and moving quickly. And you talked about different ways that you can kind of get to those jobs to be done. I mean, have you guys, I'm trying to frame this in the right way. Have you guys um, continued to, to sort of tweak those jobs to be done? Or did you kind of do like some big piece of, you know, customer segmentation work or, um, you know, a consumer insights piece to get to those jobs to be done? Like, what does that process look like internally? Uh, well, actually, you know, we, we review it probably once every every year or so. And I mean, literally just yesterday, we've we've kicked off another project here to uh, to go through the exercise once again to just make sure that we're really aligned with uh, each one of our brands is really aligned with with what the customer needs us to help them achieve. Um, so, so it's an ongoing thing, you know. I think early on, this is where that there's this notion of disruption. It's where if you find a a way of doing of, of helping the customer achieve their job to be done more efficiently, more effectively than than competitors, you can get this this disruption out there. Um, and so, I think early on, our this 120 night risk free trial was was really quite revolutionary. Uh, I know these days it just seems so ubiquitous, but when we first began, this was a real nail biter. We, we had no idea what return rates would be. Uh, we really just trusted, we trusted our customers to, um, and it really was a leap of faith, you know, we, because if, if you send out a whole bunch of product and, and you get uh, a double digit return rate, then it can just sink the business. So uh, it was a nail biter for the first four months uh, because we have this 120 night trial. And, uh, but what we realized was that, you know, as long as uh, we do our job, which is making sure that we we make sure that what we present on the websites is the most accurate information possible, then, then uh, that is what empowers the customer to achieve their goals. Uh, and so it's almost like a partnership and, um, uh, so it worked, you know, and that that was a disruptive, a, a disruptive uh, change in the offering that really changed the whole business uh, globally, actually. And, and you know, since then, it's been a, there have been lots of tweaks, and uh, we'll continue to, to continue to make tweaks. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm sure the next disruption is just around the corner. We just have to have to make sure that we pay attention and and figure out what that is. Yeah, I mean. I'm just thinking that like, it's almost, it, it's trusting the customer to be able to make, um, you know, informed decisions. Like it's, as you said, it's like a partnership, it's a two-way street, which is um, really nice. And I think that 
direct to consumer specifically puts a lot of trust in the customer um, to be, you know, to understand exactly what they need and to be really transparent with them. What do you, I guess you guys are exclusively direct to consumer um, and that's hugely important to your business model. So what are kind of the benefits that you find as a direct to consumer business? And are there any drawbacks to being exclusively direct to consumer? So there are lots of benefits. I mean, we have, uh, we don't have a, a, um, a, a brick and mortar for print. We don't have to pay rent or salespeople or worry about security or um, floor models getting dirty and, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, so that, that is, and that's all very expensive stuff. So we don't incur those costs and we can, we can then um, put that value back into the product or, or give it back to the customer. So that, that's a real advantage. Uh, and that's allowed us to keep our prices incredibly competitive and, uh, and sell really at a thousand dollars or less what, um, many of our brick and mortar competitors sell at three thousand uh, dollars. So that's that. That's really the advantage. It's a cost. It's a cost advantage. Um, uh, also, a speed advantage. We can we can move faster. We we're able to tweak our offerings and and run lots and lots of experiments simultaneously to 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 optimize uh, our offerings uh, to align better with what the customers' goals are. Uh, so, I mean, there are a huge number of advantages of being direct to consumer. Um, it does require discipline, though, because a lot of times it, it comes up that, you know, we, we lose business to brick and mortar. And uh, I mean, the brick and mortar loses business to direct to consumer as well. But, but we, we look at it the other way and we ask that question all, all the time. Why are we not earning? Why are we not earning this business? And, and I think it does come down to that you know, that uh, comfort level of touching and feeling the product that, that is still important, but, but, you know, if you turn that around and and you say, look, if that's a barrier to our customer being able to achieve their goal with our offerings, then we, what we need to do is get better at simulating that, that touch and feel or that, that kind of tactile experience that, that the customer isn't, um, uh, isn't getting through the websites and of course then you know that leads into a whole lot more video uh, and a, a lot more uh, rich photography and uh, showing showing the dynamics of of the products and uh, how they respond to to different sleeping positions and um, different body shapes sizes etc and so that's uh, you know we've invested in in a, we have a, a studio in the office here with the full rig, you know, cameras and lights. And, um, and so we can, we can quickly turn around videos. Uh, and so we're, we're just ramping that up now, actually. Um, so, you know, this is one aspect that if we, if we constrain ourselves in to the uh, direct to consumer world, <clears throat> believe me, we've been tempted to get into the brick and mortar thing ourselves but if we constrain ourselves then it, it really force it's a forcing function for for innovation and overcoming overcoming this and long in the long term uh, we think that that will will pay off um, developing that that expertise we touched on you know the fact that you guys have been growing you've got seven brands i know that this year you were recognized as one of canada's fastest growing brands by the global mails report on business um 
how was the last 12 months for you? I know it's hard to kind of, it's hard to avoid the, the conversation of the pandemic. I mean, did that impact your business at all in a good or, or a negative way? I'd love to, to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, the, <clears throat> the, um, the pandemic that just seems to keep keep going. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it was good uh, for us. It was good. Um, I think for many, it was it was terrible. And but for us, we we were in the right place at the right time. And uh, I mean, look, it hasn't it hasn't been easy. Um, I I'm old school or whatever you want to whatever you want to call it. I I've uh, still been coming to the office even when I was the only one um, and it's been difficult I think uh, folks working from home that's been a hard transition especially for a small company like ours um, you know we're still a team of only around 55 60 people and and it's been uh, without without the um, you know a strongly developed structure of of actually of teamwork um, and, and getting things done, it's very difficult to to coordinate folks uh, at a distance. So that I think that did actually uh, slow us down a bit, um, as it did for many. So I mean, that, the, the, these are all the same challenges that everyone has had. But it, but in terms of our actual market share, I think that this, the, the, at least for us, the, the uh, pandemic was very beneficial. I think it accelerated the adoption of. Uh, direct to consumer and just e-commerce in general, probably by about three years. So yeah, we made gains uh, in 2020 um, of probably three years worth of growth in one year. And uh, 2021, had it, it, the first half of the year was similar, just unbelievable growth. Uh, the second half of the year has been certainly moderated growth. Um, and, and I think it's going to get a little, as things reopen and, and we're competing with brick and mortar again, um, I think things are, things are a little more normal now uh, in terms of growth. Growth continues, but not at that, that absolutely uh, breakneck pace that we were at in the midst of the pandemic. Um, and then, of course, I think that we're all, uh, many of us are itching to, to, to in, enjoy the services again, you know, like uh, going out to restaurants and taking holidays and things. So the, there's this competition now, this cha these changes in share of wallet. And so I think that the consumer durables and, and the stuff uh, that people have been buying over the last 24 months or 20 months, I think that's gonna shift a little bit. Uh, we're, I think we're already seeing that across many, many different um, businesses, which is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that breakneck, pace that you referenced before what does that mean for your team in terms of um like growth have you with um you know growth in in revenue or growth in um purchasing does that mean your team needs to get bigger does that does that mean your team needs to adapt like how are you thinking about the the business the mechanics of the business oh yeah I mean, we've i mean during during the, if we, if we were to look at the transition since February, uh, 2020, which is, or March, 2020, when all this really started, uh, impacting everyone, it was at that time, we were still operating like a, like a, a small, very small business. And, and we've had to undergo this transition. I mean, we're, we are still a small business, but we've had to, we're in that awkward 
adolescent phase, if you will, where we we need lightweight structures and principles to uh, to facilitate high performance teamwork. Whereas before, we everyone could just be swarming everything, and uh, and there's some there are pros and cons to to both. But we've had to really undergo that transition over the last uh, 12 months now to to really figure out how to how to work together at a at a different scale and still get things done so remotely uh, at a different size um, and and remaining focused and and still outputting things. So that that has been that has been difficult. So yeah, the the pandemic has or the the changes over the last two years have resulted in um, many hires. Uh, and I would say certainly on the with the customer service team and the supply chain uh, teams, a lot of uh, really good days and really bad days. Um, and uh, certainly, I think that the, the the bulk of the the success and the output of the business is, is uh, and the, the uh, what would you call it? Um, the credit would go to those two functions in the business for having really kept things going through tremendous adversity. Um, so, you know, yeah, a lot of change. It's been, it's been a really interesting, interesting year and a half. If there were, you know, any other small businesses, which I'm sure they are kind of tuning into this, are there any kind of, when you talk about communication and collaboration while, while remote, are there any tools or any tips you have for, you know, making that better? Did you guys implement I know a new way of communicating with each other. Like I know most teams use Slack, but um, yeah, was there was there anything you guys implemented that was kind of game changing that really helped? Yeah, it, yes, uh, there there has been a system, and and again, I think if if you were to ask my colleagues, uh, you'd probably get mixed opinions on it uh, because it certainly is a big change. But I think you know when when different different management strategies work at different sizes so if it's a team of five people really you can um everyone can really be doing everything you can everyone can have their hands in in every aspect of the business uh between you know up to about 10 even 15 people and uh and that's 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 a great time in in any business i've in fact uh, i've spent the the majority of my career at at that type of size and uh, so i'm very comfortable operating a business like that, um, a little bigger now, and those systems break. You just can't have everyone in, in everywhere, or you just get, get absolutely nothing done. It, I kind of compare it like the, the vision or the, the visualization is if you look at the way a um, professional or a like a, a bunch of kids playing hockey versus uh, professional hockey teams, the, the kids will swarm the puck. I mean, they're just this clump of, of two teams clumping around the puck. And every now and then the puck kind of escapes the clump and then the clump reforms around wherever the, the puck end goes. Maybe it's even uh, in soccer, it might be more easy uh, to visualize because it's a little, little slower. Um, but then as soon as you, if you compare that to the, the professional teams, every player has a position and, and it's really this, there's, the swarming is is gone. You can't have a, a defense person um, swarming uh, or the whole defense line swarming the forwards line. You just can't have that. Otherwise, the the team will will not succeed. Um, and I think that's the big difference. That's where we really had to define the roles 
uh, better. We've had to, and, and to do that, there's this match between accountability and authority. You, folks who are going to be held accountable for doing something have to have authority over the, the uh, information resources <clears throat> and decisions relative to what they're being held accountable for. Uh, and, and once you structure on, really, that's a core principle, um, structuring around that, you, you, uh, the, the business can then organize in a way where you can break, break up into uh, uh, functions and, and then deepen specialties in each one of those functions, uh, and then even start building cross-functional teams, which, which, is, um, which is where we're at now. So, so there's no one magic bullet for for this organizational issue, it's a, I'd say getting more and more, when teams grow, you get more and more complexities. Almost uh, every time you add another person, you get another uh, order of complexity. So you have to, uh, at least in my experience, we've had to just really focus on how to, how to make these cross-functional teams work. And, um, and I, think we've, I think we've largely achieved it now and uh, it's been, yeah, it's been a fascinating maturity of the business and we're starting to really move a lot faster. So, uh, and I think, I think every, every business has to go through this and they figure out their own ways of doing it. I love the, first of all, I love that you used a hockey reference because that's just the most Canadian, <laughs> the most Canadian analogy. Um, but it, it's so true. And Personally, I've been in companies that were, you know, I was the first employee and we grew to 30 people. And then I joined a company that was 30 and we grew to 200 and now I'm at dig. And I totally, I totally resonate with what you're saying. Like if you don't get those organizational structures or processes in place, um, yeah, you're all just swarming the same things. Um, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. So yeah, the, the challenge, the, the, the challenge though, is that, um, you can't make these processes heavy. And, and I've, I've made this mistake in the past where you, you end up building these big flow charts through the business and say, okay, look, this is how we're going to do this. And this is how we're going to do that. And then the, then the flow chart, you, you end up half the team is just working on flow charts the whole time. And, um, and then, you know, we've tried, we tried project charters as well. And, uh, and then you get half the team working on project charters and it's just this paperwork. And, and uh, so you, it's this balance between that you need some, what I've, what I've concluded is that a company needs some process, but that process really is better. Anchor, it's better when it's anchored on principles, not on concrete processes, because the principles themselves should really be largely immutable. Uh, the processes should be able to form in, in real time on the basis of the principles. Uh, yeah. And that way you can keep things lightweight. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What, what comes to mind is also wanting to make sure that people have autonomy to kind of develop their own processes. Right. So, you know, you talked about those people who are uh, at the end of the day accountable for things, or they have the authority to be accountable and you want to make sure that they're empowered as well to kind of set up their own processes. So you need something lightweight that kind of guides the organization, but, you know, doesn't stop people from having the autonomy to develop kind of their own way of doing things. I 100% agree with you. The, the thing is where, where that, uh, that, that would be within a function and uh, who, how that function runs. So let, you know, so let's say take um, a really, a, a function that's easy to, not easy, but say less challenging to, to define the boundaries of, say the customer service function. Um, it, 
how the customer service function, the how it really is inside the black box, if you will, of, of customer service. The how is come up with the team, uh, by the team. The how is of the team, by the team, for the team. And, it, and it's this, it's the uh, aggregate of the processes, um, the culture of that team, even uh, the reporting, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But how the results are, or the deliverables are exposed is how the various, how customer service will speak to the brand function, for example. They will, they will communicate on the basis of, of, of deliverables. So what? So out in the black box, all the how, it, which is entirely under the authority of of that function and the folks within it, um, must yield the deliverable at the end of the day, and and that's the the accountability. So the authority is within the function, and the accountability is is shown between functions, and so that's where these these lightweight principles apply. They they really are are applying cross functionally, um, and you need because everyone needs to in order for for different functions to communicate, they only need to be speaking the same language, and so these principles apply cross functionally, and and that's where the these lightweight processes uh, do exist, and and so that if you're you know uh, for example, if we're building a, a television advertising campaign, that is a cross functional team comprised of our ad buyers, our, our brand manager, um, our creative services function. Uh, so that's a, you know, that's at least a minimum of three people in that team, but likely multiple people from each function. Uh, the, the advertising um, folks also need to be able to contract uh, or form cross-functional teams with our e-commerce function, which might be also working with our applications and engineering function. And so they need to be able to quickly uh, switch between these different teams with different objectives, but speak in the same language. And, and so that's really been what we've established over the last 12 months. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's, it's worked remarkably well. Um, yeah, it's actually worked remarkably well. That's great. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I mean, I, this le- leads me to kind of my next types of questions which are less focused on mattress category and more just focused on being an entrepreneur. Um, so you've obviously been an entrepreneur for quite some time. Um, I think last time we spoke, you talked about setting up a, an entrepreneurial business, even in high school, which is maybe a story for another day, but was really fascinating to hear about. What do you think it's, it takes to be a successful entrepreneur? Well, <laughs> I think it takes uh, uh, just really the the realization that uh, it that there are uh, suboptimal customer experiences and that, and that you can do something about it, and and then combined with uh, perseverance to um, to power through those down cycles, which are inevitable, um, not take too much. Uh, uh, ownership or, or pride in the up cycles because sometimes they're just windfalls and they, you know, they, they aren't really as a result of, of your um, one's brilliance. Uh, they're, they're just part of how the, the, the market ebbs and flows. And uh, or sometimes they are uh, because of one's brilliance. Um, and then I suppose that's where you, one humbly indulges in one's success. Um, <laughs> But and yeah, I'd, I'd say it's really the the 
just that perseverance and, um, and, and constantly staying in touch with what it is that you're trying to solve uh, or help the customer solve mm. or achieve. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I, you're like, I don't want to talk about myself as a successful entrepreneur, <laughs> um, which is, <laughs> which is very humble of you. And I appreciate, um, but I think it's, it's fascinating for people who maybe have always wanted to start their own business and have never been able to, or have never had the courage to kind of go out on their own. So um, I appreciate you indulging my question, which makes you talk about yourself as a success, as a successful entrepreneur. I mean, do you think that there's anything unique about you as a founder or as an, as an entrepreneur? Mm. Oh, I have an identical twin brother. Who's, who's also my partner in crime. Really? We, uh, we've started all, all of our businesses together. Um, he's actually now over at uh, article.com, which is a, a, another company that we co-founded. Um, and so we, we compare notes frequently. I'd say that that helps a lot, uh, having, having someone to, um, to kind of think things through with. Uh, although we we've we made a early on we discovered that it's really important that they're all that they're at least for us you know that there be a single point of accountability so we we co-ceoed or co co-managed companies for a while and then we we realized no that's that's not going to work we just argue we're arguing all the time uh so one of us would always take point but that that's that's a bit possibly unique um although there are many people who form partnerships and then start businesses that way so you know, and I think they would all experience the same benefits of being a, a genetically identical. I'm not sure has um, contributed. Maybe even that's yeah. been to our detriment because we've got that the same was going to be my next question. Spot. Yeah, my my next question was going to be: Do you feel like you have like a leg up because you are co-founding with someone who is your identical twin? Well, I I don't know. I mean, uh, we we have more output jointly but think about think about your own biases and then imagine speaking with someone who can can really from a couple of like you know as google predicts your searches uh your one's identical twin if you've grown up in the same household they with just a couple of words they can predict what what you're going to say yeah um it's not mind reading it's just familiarity but imagine uh, being in that echo chamber of of one's own blind spots. And, um, you know, that, I think that can be pretty, uh, that can actually be a pretty major disadvantage, uh, probably even to the point where it offsets any, any benefits of just the, the throughput. I must admit working with, with, uh, uh my colleagues here now, at, uh, and, and all the, the different variety of backgrounds and, and the, the diversity of the team is, uh, provides a much, it certainly challenges me a lot more um, than, than it would if, if I was just in this echo chamber with my brother all the time. Yeah, <laughs> that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely unique um, as, as a founder to be working with your twin. If we just look ahead for a second, we're, we're almost out of time. And I want to talk a little bit about goodmorning.com and what does the future hold for the business? Well, I think our, we're really focused on this digitally native direct-to-consumer uh, market in general. And I think that it really, this, there's just so much out there, so many suboptimal customer experiences still that are, are yet to be 
improved that um, we're going to, I see good morning, uh, dot com or good morning expanding into multiple consumer uh, verticals uh, over the next few years and, and growth to continue. Certainly will uh, a geographical expansion as well, which is underway. So yeah, I think the, the future for us is very bright. I'm, I'm super optimistic about it. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot a lot we can still do and uh you know we're we're hiring we're certainly hiring and i don't think that'll ever stop amazing um thank you so much for your time today sam um if you is there anything that you would want to leave the listeners with from what we talked about today any advice that you've got for someone who's out there looking to start a business um uh, i suppose uh there's a an essay I read a few years ago um, that was recommended to me by uh, my co one of my co-founders at Article, and um, it, it's called On Compromise, and it, it is it's a essay written uh, by I think, I think his name is John Morley. He was an English parliamentarian, uh, a parliament member, um, member of parliament in the under the Victorian in Victorian times, 1870s, I think, is when he wrote this thing. Uh, so it is one of the most uh, complicated, difficult reads I've ever gone through. Um, it's just, this, you know, every sentence is a run-on paragraph and uh, every paragraph is a chapter. It, it's the most difficult thing to get through, but I gave it a three-word summary. Um, and it is uh, uh, question assumptions, think deeply, act on truth. And I think that that really is my guiding principle. Uh, that was a formative read. And um, uh, so that's a three word summary that'll save people months of struggling through this essay. But I think that is the best uh, takeaway I can, or advice, if you want to call it, that I would give anyone that really it's that question assumptions, think deeply, act on truth. Uh, and that will ultimately yield good things and, uh, and success. I'm glad I don't have to go and read the <laughs> the whole essay now. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for the, yeah. the the Coles Notes version. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this has been amazing. Thank you so much, Sam. Um, we will be back next week with another episode. But until then, we'll say goodbye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Dig In. If you want more information about Dig Insights or Upside, please check us out on LinkedIn or at our websites at diginsights.com or upside.com. If you have any ideas for future episodes or would like to be a guest, please feel free to direct message me through the LinkedIn app.